I recently finished a series of four fantasy novels. Each one was six or 700 pages. So it was a, a, a long story. And as I got about midway through the, the fourth and final volume, as the, the story was starting to reach its, its peak, its climax, the author started making references to, to characters and to events that happened way back in the first novel. And if I'm going to be honest, in the length of time it took me to, to, to read one, two, three, and four, I had forgotten who some of those characters were. I had forgotten some of the events that were being referenced or why they mattered for the story. So I had to go back and review. I had to go look up who is this character. Now what, what happened so that the story made sense? Well, you may recall that we are now in a series of sermons where we're looking at the Bible as one story. It's a story about God's love and God's plan to save the world. And so before we go much further in the story so that we understand where we are, it might help to, to review. Remember, it started with God as creator. Everything that exists was created by a good God who said that creation was good. God was pleased with what God made, including creating humans in God's own image and likeness. God created us to be eternal beings, to be an eternal relationship with God. But almost from the beginning, we rejected that. We wanted to do our own thing. We pushed away from God, disobeying God. And quickly in the book of Genesis, we saw this quick decline, this quick descent into corruption, distancing ourselves further and further away from God. We call that the fall. Now, God didn't give up on us. God didn't give up on God's original plan. And so God started a work of redemption in a rather surprising way. God decided to save the world through people, through a, through a family that would become a nation. It started with an old couple, Abraham and Sarah, unlikely candidates for starting a family. But with God's blessing, they had a son named Isaac. Isaac later had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob ended up having 12 sons and a daughter, and those 12 sons became the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Now, one of the promises that God had made to this people was that one day they would have a land, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But before they could claim that land for themselves, they actually ended up in Egypt, not their home. There was a terrible famine. They had to go there because that's where there was grain. And there they lived for over four centuries. Originally, they were welcome guests, but, but as the number of the Israelites grew, they became a threat to a new pharaoh who feared them, who oppressed them, who forced them into slavery. As their suffering grew, so did their cries to God in heaven. God heard their cries and sent a person. This is what God does. God works through humans. God picked a man named Moses and said, you go to the Israelites. You tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses led the Israelite nation, now a populous people, out of Egypt 
and into the desert, the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. And here the story takes a strange and surprising turn. You see, it should only take a a matter of weeks to reach the promised land, modern-day Israel, walking the journey they did. You know, there's a number of factors, but most of us on foot could do it in about a month. But according to the story, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years, not not a month. Well, what's going on here? Honestly, it's too much for us to get into today. The long and short of it is that they lacked the faith to enter in and claim the land that God had promised them. And and so, sort of as a punishment, God said that, that an entire generation would have to pass before the Israelites could enter into the promise that God had made to them. In fact, that's what the number 40 represents in terms of 40 years in the Bible. It, it represents a generation. So on, on one level, we might look at this um, 40 years of wandering out in the wilderness as God's punishment for, for lack of faith, for disobedience. And, and all of that is true, by the way. But I think there was also something deeper and, and necessary going on. You see, for, for 400 years, they have been slaves. Slaves don't get to be self-determining. Slaves are told when to do it and, and what to do and, and how to do it. There's no freedom. There's no rights. They, they'd been immersed in, a, in an Egyptian culture. They hadn't had an opportunity to form their own sense of, of identity as a people. And even take that a step further, when they went to Egypt 400 and some years before, they were just a small tribe of people. They, they had never developed a culture or a set of religious principles or practices. They'd never formed a way of governance. In those days, the head of the tribe, the patriarch, in this case Jacob, set the rules. What Jacob said to do is what the tribe did. But then they became slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh told them, told them what to do. Before they could become God's nation, before they could settle in a land of their own and be self-governing, they needed formation. They needed a process of maturing and becoming. They needed to grow up. Now, now think of it in these terms. Maybe you've had an adolescent or teen in your home and And before you could send them off to be independent in college, you were teaching them how to be responsible. Or think about those of you who have served in our armed forces. You you went to boot camp before you reported for duty or before you were sent off for war. Or or maybe in your profession, you went through a, a, a corporate orientation or an internship before you began the actual work. Or think about the process of naturalization that immigrants go through to become a citizen of the United States. In each case, it's a, it's a, a process of learning and becoming part of the culture and, and understanding the way things work. That's, I think, what was going on during these years in the desert. It was an opportunity for God's people to learn 
how to be God's people. Now, if you were with us last week, you, you heard us have a conversation with Dr. Steve Harper about the role of the law at this point in the story. And you may remember a key line from that interview. He said that, that the purpose of the Ten Commandments was to teach the people how to be in covenant with God and with one another. They had, they had just been freed from slavery, but that wasn't enough. They had to learn what they had been freed for, what they had been freed to become. And so we were given the Ten Commandments. This is what it means to be in covenant with God and with one another. Now, there's many more laws in the, in the Torah that we call the first five books of the Bible. If you continue to read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see an expansion of these laws, all of them explaining this is how we live in covenant with God and with one another. Now, there's one thing that we need to understand about Israel as a nation that's very different than our modern context. We're, we're in the midst of a presidential election. We, we've seen debates, presidential and vice presidential debates. Soon, uh, maybe already, you're, you're voting of who our next elected leader would be. That's not how it was in Israel. Israel was a theocracy, meaning that there was a, a a blend of, of civil law and religious law, that who we are religiously is who we are uh, nationally. It's, it's how we govern ourselves. It's our religion. And so you would expect in a theocracy that the laws of the people, the laws of the lands, would include rules and regulations for religious practices. And this was new. Go back to Genesis, you'll see some religious practices. You'll see Cain and Abel offering their sacrifices, as did Noah and Abraham and others. But you don't get any sense in the book of Genesis that this had been shaped into a, a religion per se. That would come later. In fact, we don't even know if the Hebrews practiced any form of religion in Egypt at all. They may have even worshipped the Egyptian gods. We, we don't know. And so they needed this time in the desert, these years of wandering, to organize their religion, to define what it was as this chosen nation to worship their one true God. And so in the pages of Exodus and Leviticus, you read about a priesthood, one of the tribes of Israel, the Levites, you read about festivals and, and practices of how they will live out their faith in God. We read about a, a place of worship called a tabernacle. It was a tent that they carried with them from place to place. Eventually, that would be replaced by a temple permanent in Jerusalem. But central to their religious life, central to their religious laws, was animal sacrifice, the primary way that God was worshipped in the Old Testament was animal sacrifice. It says in Exodus 29, 38 through 42, now this is what you should offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs regularly every day. Offer one lamb in the morning and offer the other lamb at twilight. With the first lamb, add one-tenth of a measure of high-quality flour mixed with a quarter of hen of oil. 
from crushed olives and a quarter of hen of wine for a drink offering. With the second lamb offered at twilight, again include a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning as a soothing smell, a gift offering for the Lord. This should be the regular, entirely burned offering in every generation at the meeting tent's entrance in the Lord's presence. Every day, two lambs would be killed and burned on an altar, one in the morning and one in the evening. But those weren't the only offerings. There were many more offerings. Certain feasts and festivals required additional animal sacrifice that would happen throughout the year. And then there were times when an individual or a family would bring their own animal to be sacrificed. When the birth of a child, family would bring an offering. Remember the story about Jesus? Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple along with a pair of pigeons to be sacrificed as he was dedicated. Other times, offerings might be made uh, to worship God, to give God thanks for some special blessing, or uh, as, a, as a sin offering, a guilt offering. If I knew or that I or a member of my family had done something wrong, I might bring a sacrifice. So this went on day after day. And it wasn't just sheep either. As I mentioned, pigeons were given as, as offerings, a small offering, but they were bigger than that. There were also goats that were given, rams, and, and offerings as large as bulls. Imagine that, day after day after day, burnt offerings being given in worship to God. Let me just make this really clear. If, if I want to worship God, in Old Testament terms, I go to my flock, I go to my herd, I find a good animal uh, without blemish, not crippled, one of my best, and I take it to the tabernacle, and I give it over to the priest, and the priest cuts the throat of the animal, lets it bleed out, and then sprinkles some of that blood on the altar. Can you imagine and there would be a fire burning on the altar. And that animal would be placed on the fire and burned in part or whole. And that went on all day, every day. Worship was bloody, smoky, messy business. Now here in our beautiful sanctuary, it's probably hard to wrap our mind around worshiping God like that. Methodists are, are hardly ever messy Christians. We like things to be done in a particular kind of, of way. But there really is a, a kind of logic to animal sacrifice. The idea of giving something over to God as an expression of what's going in, on in my heart. Let, let me just give you a few examples. Have you ever bought someone you cared for um, flowers or candy or a piece of jewelry? That's an offering of sorts. Have you ever bought something for someone to replace something that you lost or broke and you're, you're replacing it because you feel badly? Have you ever 
made a handmade gift that you've given to someone and you made it just for them? Have you ever pinched pennies in order to buy an engagement ring or, or maybe a first car for your kids or, or maybe saving up for your kids' college tuition? Have you ever bought or, or made a card to say you're sorry for something you said or you did? Have you ever given a really special gift just to express your love, your appreciation, your affection? You see, all of these in a way represent what the purpose of an of a animal sacrifice was. They were tangible expressions, giving over something tangible as a gift to God, sometimes in worship, sometimes in gratitude, sometimes in repentance. Frederick Buechner says, to sacrifice something is to make it holy by giving it away for love. I still remember just a little more than a year ago, the day that Kelly and I moved into the parsonage. The moving truck was there. They were bringing in our furniture. We were hot and sweaty. The house was a mess. And, and then walking up to the door was, was Helen Kirst bringing us lunch, a homemade hot casserole. Smelled delicious. All the moving guys stopped immediately, and you could see the, the drool running from their mouth as they smelled that great lunch. That was a holy gift of love, and I'll never forget it. So the question is, if you want to bring a gift to God, a gift of thanks, a gift of love, a gift of repentance, how, how do you do it? Well, today, perhaps that takes the form of our our tithes, our offering, our financial giving to the church. Maybe it comes in the form of the, the time we give, the service we give, the using of the gifts and abilities that God has given us. But in, but in biblical times, those things were, were also true, but, but in biblical times, which were also primarily agrarian times and also pre-monetary the primary way that you would give a gift to God was to give something that you produced, which was likely an animal from your herd or from your flock. So you would bring that to the priest. And you have to imagine 4,000 years ago that fire still seemed like a mysterious thing. And so just get the picture. As, as that gift you brought, animal, was placed onto the fire. And as the priest is chanting prayers, and as that gift is being consumed by the flames, and you see the smoke rising to heaven, I think you can begin to get the idea of, of transference. I, I have brought to God my gift, and God is receiving it through the ceremony, through holy fire, through the smoke that's reaching up to heaven. It's really pretty straightforward. Foreign to us, but pretty clear, pretty systematic. This is how I want to thank God. This is what I bring. If I want to say I'm sorry to God, this is, this is what I do. It's pretty basic idea. The problem is that there was a, a flaw in the plan. As straightforward as it seems, there was a pretty significant shortcoming. You see, it's possible to give a gift without it really being a sacrifice, especially when I give from my abundance. 
doesn't really cost me anything. It's, it's possible to do religious things and just go through the motions. God wanted the, the sacrifice to be a reflection of the heart, that, that there should be a correspondence between the, the way the gift is given, the, the kind of gift that is given, and the state of the heart of the giver. But it's possible. It, it's possible to make all the right sacrifices, to do all the right religious things and still have an entirely godless heart. There's a lot of examples in Scripture. God wants our hearts. God wants our lives. God wants our wills far more than God wants bloody, burning animals. Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, With what? Should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before God with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, human one what is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. Since since the the beginning of, of the story, since the Garden of Eden, what God desires isn't sacrifice and in the form of a bloody offering. What God desires is relationship. The sacrifice God desires is the sacrifice of our lives, the way we sacrificially give our lives for the sake of God and others. God God doesn't want what burns on an altar. God wants what burns in our hearts. The sacrifice God desires is us. You see, this is the tension throughout Scripture. God desires and offers us relationship with the creator of the universe, but we settle for religion. God offers us the tree of life, eternal life, and we choose knowledge. God wants an exclusive relationship, but we settle for idols. God wants all of our love, to, to love God wholeheartedly with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we choose other lovers. God offers us holiness. We choose sin. We choose to make a name for ourselves. So how does this sacrifice, heart issue ever get resolved? Well, one day a a man was walking along a river. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And and he was spotted by his cousin, John the Baptist, who points out and says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's, That's sacrificial language. Jesus in his coming, Jesus in his living, Jesus in his example, Jesus in his teaching, Jesus in his dying demonstrates for us the kind of sacrifice, the true life of sacrifice that God intends. 
He gave himself fully, without reservation, totally for us, all of us, in love. It says in Philippians, he didn't hold on to his rights as God, but poured himself out for us like a servant, giving his life. Jesus once told his disciples, this is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. But listen to the rest. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. The ultimate expression of Jesus' sacrificial love for us is the cross. The cross demonstrates this is what it means to live a life sacrificially, that, that, that is beyond comparison to any offering that I can bring to God, especially those offerings that are brought with the wrong heart. There's an old line from the hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so this, this Old Testament sacramental system which is established, formalized in the, the, those days that they wandered in the wilderness with, with the tabernacle and the priests and all of that. With Jesus, all of that gets eliminated. That's why we don't do that anymore. Jesus was the perfect example of a sacrificial life. You see, following Jesus isn't just an invitation to fulfill religious duties, to bring our lambs to the altar every day. Instead, following Jesus is an invitation to sacrificial living, offering to God every day all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our bodies, our souls, our gifts, our abilities, our resources, our times, our priorities, our relationships, our affections, all of it. He wants all of it. That's the true meaning. Even when the sacrificial system was established with animals in the Old Testament, that was the point. God didn't care about the animals. God cares deeply about the one giving the sacrifice, you and me. You see, sacrifice is meant to cost something. It's meant to to cost something from me as I give the gift. So if it was an animal from my flock, that, that's an animal I could eat. I could feed to my children or I could sell. It was meant to cost me something. Today, as we give our tithes or our offerings, our time, our talents, they're meant to cost us something, not just to give it from the overflow, the excess, what I don't need, what I have left over. It's meant to be a sacrifice, that's what the word means, to sacrifice for the sake of something important, something greater than myself. The sacrifice that Jesus gave was his very life. And Jesus said, if any would like to follow me, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will save them. What advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves, yet perish or lose their lives? 
Friends, what sacrifice do you bring before the Lord?